and welcome to our Gem Pursuit. I'm your host, Matthew Weldon, and I'm here with my co-host, Elise Ketcher. Hi, everyone. You're joining us for part three of our Jewelry Through the Ages journey. We're at the turn of the 20th century. The long, long Victorian period has just ended, and that can only mean one thing. That's right, today's episode, it's all about the Edwardian era. Elise, do you want to tell us what we're going to be talking about today? A time full of splendor. We get to talk about diamonds coming out of South Africa, pearls pouring out of Australia and the Persian Gulf. We also get to talk about the coronation and, of course, all of the other historically important events, including the use of platinum in jewellery in this episode. It's going to be fantastic. Lots to discuss, lots of interesting and very different points to talk about this week. Looking forward to get started. After a long Victorian period, which spanned most of the 19th century, we move on to the last period in history that's named after a monarch, uh, which is the Edwardian period, which started at the turn of the 20th century. At least much shorter period, but that's certainly not to say there's not a lot in it. There's so much going on in this period, and I'm really excited to kind of set the scene for everyone of what's going on um, in this period in the beginning, but also how it relates into jewellery. So we obviously um, see the death of of Queen Victoria. And if you listened to the podcast last week, you would have known that we kind of followed the moods of, of the way that she set this particular period. So, you know, she was very much in love in the beginning and then she goes through this time of mourning. And once Queen Victoria dies, the nation kind of like lets loose. We become a very prosperous time to be living. And King Edward VII takes over and it almost becomes like a party in his kingdom. So we see so much going on and the technological advancements of the time also make a great kind of scene of um, splendor, really. Yeah, it's kind of a period that really changes to more what we might recognize as modern times from before Edwardian period, it was definitely very different. But then after that, it was kind of what I suppose we today might recognize as more in keeping with the environment today, uh, obviously, except probably uh, computers and technology. But and as you said, yeah, prosperous time. It was it was like a, a big party in a lot of ways. And I think Edward kind of personified that himself. He enjoyed gambling. He enjoyed the finer things in life. Definitely um, did. And in France and kind of the rest of Europe, they called it the Belle Epoque because of the, you know, the, the long summer evenings, they had the garden parties, all, all this kind of thing. So very prosperous time. A lack of wars, though, as well, which probably led to it. Prosperity and stability. His rule begins in 1901 and he uh, at this stage has already um, got his queen by his side and they become the kind of it couple. Now, the way that I like to uh, kind of uh, 
you know, explain the two of them. If you ever see any pictures of them, it literally looks like they've put all of the jewelry that they own on the ground and rolled around in it and then stood up and they're just like covered in jewels. We're talking about like uh, stomachers. We've got people who are emulating them as well, wearing all of the fashions and hairdos that they're wearing. For someone who hasn't heard of a stomacher, what is that? As, well, it, it, it's in the name, basically. Yeah, so it it's it's almost like a, a long brooch that's worn on the front of, 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 of a dress or gown. Usually set with very large stones. Quite impressive piece. Absolutely. Um, and this all comes from, of course, the sources that are coming out of the African mines. So we do see a depletion in the, the two historical mines, India and Brazil. Those two mines um, are no longer producing diamonds during this time period. And we see for the first time diamonds being mined underground in the Kimberley area of South Africa. So we start to see those diamonds coming in to the kingdom. We also see an influx of other gemstones from around the world easily making it to the shores of um, Europe because of the advancements in technology. Of course, we know about some of the famous ships of that time as well that were setting sail. One ship in particular that its maiden voyage was quite a historical one. And that, of course, was the Titanic during this time, which sunk in 1912. Which Um, was uh, built in the north of Ireland, Harland and Wolfe shipyards, and then set sail from Southampton and stopped in, I think its last stop was Cove in County Cork. And then obviously went on its faithful journey. Yeah, but the technology advancements in the in the sea travel were huge as well. And and the the trading on the ocean was really a, a massive part of the Edwardian period. The British Empire was at its peak at this time, and they said the sun truly never set on it. Their dominance of the shipping uh, allowed all their merchants and their traders to, to kind of trade with all over the world. And but it, they didn't have it all their own way at this period. Uh, the Germans and the Americans, their economies and their naval capabilities were really starting to grow at this time as well. So they kind of had a bit of competition. And for the first time in history, I think the German and the American economies were actually growing faster than the, than the British economy, which made for a very interesting political climate at the time. And talking about politics as well, we know from this particular period as well, we see the suffragette movement. So um, in the late 1800s, we see New Zealand for the first time um, allowing women to vote. Any woman over the age of 21 was allowed to vote. And we start to see this suffragette movement take hold then also in the United Kingdom. And so this particular suffragette movement started in about 1903 and we see all through this period subtle hints of this particular movement through jewellery as well. So a lot is going on politically, but also the advancements in technology, the exploration that has happened to allow diamonds to come onto the shore, the way that um, travel has become quite extensive, has allowed pearls to flow into the into the kingdom as well from places like Australia and the Persian Gulf. So it's just an incredible time period for you to actually have access to all of the the wide spanning areas of your kingdom. It doesn't take 
you know, years to get these things anymore. It's taking weeks and months. So we start to see that this kind of rich wealth coming through to Europe in quite a brilliant way. Yes. And of course, the growing middle class from the Victorian period that we talked about meant that there was a big demand for jewellery. And with the inflow of dimes, uh, as Elise mentioned, a lot more people had a demand for these particular stones. And you'll see that in Edwardian jewellery. It's a lot of it is diamond set. And just talking, when we're talking about the Edwardian period, there is a bit of, um, there's kind of different ways of looking. What exactly is the Edwardian era? So a lot of people look at it from kind of the turn of the century to 1914. They kind of look at World War One as kind of like the, the end, the definitive end of it, even though Edward obviously died a couple of years before that. But when we talk about jewellery in the Edwardian era, we refer to it from sort of 1900 to about 1920, uh, purely because you get the, the style of that era was kind of similar. But once you get to 1920 and beyond, you start to see the Art Deco influences. So, well, the Edwardian period in history is largely regarded as ending at the start of the First World War. In terms of jewellery, we speak about it a little bit longer, don't we? Yeah, so Edwardian period in terms of jewellery spans from 1901 to 1920, where we see, you know, 1920. 1925 is where the art deco period kind of takes hold we do have a like a, a part in history where the war obviously happens and during the first world war we see basically a halt in jewelry so in those in those years we see a halt in jewelry because there's no resources available or left for jewelry it's also banned because of rationing and things like that. But the stylings don't change. So the Garland era or the pretty period as it's known doesn't technically finish until the 1920s. Identifying Edwardian jewellery, there really is a big change that happens in the turn of the 1900s. And it kind of defines, I think for me, one of the biggest ways and clearest ways of identifying Edwardian jewellery and that of course is the use of platinum. My gosh it was such a extravagant way to kind of enter this period because a lot of people look at platinum today and they think it's more of a a modern thing they think it's more kind of like something that is used more towards the 1990s but actually this is where they mastered how to use platinum in a way that is just absolutely so fine so immaculately done it if you ever see platinum work during the Edwardian period, it's known almost as platinum lace. It looks like they have weaved a, a, a design out of platinum and it looks like lace. It is just absolutely exquisite. I suppose the reason why that is, is platinum is it's very hard. Gold is very hard as well and it's very malleable, but platinum is is it's much harder even than that. So you can get much finer work. Um, So you can get kind of filigree work, open pierce work, which is all very fine detail in the settings. Yeah, and it it was kind of like a lighter jewellery, which is really pioneered by Cartier, probably about 15 years before that. Louis Cartier at the time, I believe. And he was, he kind of got a bit 
sick of the heavier Victorian style jewellery and he wanted something much lighter, fresher and the, the use of platinum allowed him to create this and his workshop was one of the first ones who really mastered how to actually use platinum and just to give you a bit more detail about platinum, platinum was found in Ecuador almost two centuries before in the 1700s and um, it was called platina which I thought was interesting actually means uh, little silver. I mean it wasn't used in jewellery then because it's more of an aggregate of six different types of metals. And when you use it for jewellery, it would kind of break and crack. Um, because when you think about what being, when you have hard metal, it's more likely to crack. Where, where you won't be able to bend it and you won't be able to probably scratch it. But if you put apply enough pressure to it, it will crack. But as you mentioned at the start of this section, is when they got to... The Edwardian time, they had learned how to extract the different elements from platinum, uh, are the platinum group metals, and those metals are platinum, iridium, palladium, ruthenium, osmium, and rhodium. Hope I said those correctly. But they could extract them and they could make platinum, which is basically mostly 90% platinum, uh, small bits of iridium and palladium. And that was the key to this type of jewelry. It, it's actually fascinating when you you know, look back through history and see most people think jewellery and history are two completely separate things, but they actually work together in a way and they're, they're, you know, fused together in such a way that the two tell the story of the time. And that's what jewellery is about. We see the this is how we identify what is going on through these centuries we look at the diamond cuts and we're like that's not a cut that would have prevailed at this particular time period it has to be earlier it has to be later platinum is that focal point in this period where we look at it and go well it can't be victorian it has to be edwardian if it is present now like you were saying they mastered the use of platinum and so we see very, very fine designs. The number one thing that I hear every single time nowadays when we're when people are looking for engagement rings is they're like, I want the setting to be lower. I want it to be finer. I want it to be, you know, looking as if the diamond is actually floating on the finger. Now, this was made possible. These kinds of settings were made possible in the Edwardian period. Tiffany & Co. today, everything that they do, all of their settings are not new settings. They're not unique to them. Those settings were created long before them uh, in this period. This is where the diamond solitaire was actually able to look the way that it does today with the fine, fine settings. And, you know, why would you want something modern when you can have the original? And this is what the Edwardian period is about. These rings have lasted over 100 years and they're still here today because of the crafts, craftsmanship that was used to create them. Yeah, and exactly. There's a really interesting point that you had that Julie can tell you kind of what's going on in the environment at the time. It reflects it, really. I know you mentioned the suffragette movement and there's suffragette jewelry, which tells you about the the movement there. So you can see jewelry if it's, uh, well, I hope this isn't a trade tip that I'm going to take away no, from you. No, no, but no, no. You'll see sometimes suffragette jewelry set with um, green stones, white stones and violet stones, usually peridot, pearl and either some sort of garnet or an amethyst. Um, so green, white and violet stands for give women the vote, which is kind of like a thing you would have seen in the uh, Victorian jewellery where the, the jewellery has a meaning 
to it. Uh, but that's a, we're not quite to the trade tip section yet, but that is something if you see Julie with those stones in it, that selection of stones, it's probably suffragette movement jewellery. I, lo- I love the suffragette movement jewellery as well because there's a lot of actual tie pins as well that you find during this period, which women actually gave to their husbands and their husbands didn't know that they were actually wearing this hidden message, which meant give women the vote. So we've seen tie pins and we see cufflinks where the women have actually subtly trying to show yes, we want the vote. We want to be seen as, um, as equals. I love that about the jewelry as well, but just to kind of overcap as well, some of the other motifs that you'll always see during this period, of course, it's known as the garland era because we see a lot of leaf motifs. We see a lot of laurel wreaths. Um, We see tassels, the Greek key um, motif, uh, open work motif is seen extensively during this period. Ribbons, bows, swags, wings, roses, daisies, garlands, trefolds, and of course, all in an endless array of diamonds. So these particular motifs are known from this period of course we see bows later on and earlier on as well we see sparrows and other natural motifs but in this period we see them finished in a way that has never been seen before very fine work with platinum and of course you can see the very very fine outlines of these leaves and laurel wreaths which are all outlined by platinum and mill grain settings a fantastic work and of course is one of the reasons why um, royalty at this time fell in love with jewellery all over again. All right. Yeah, that's great. Lovely. Thank you. Yes. Prince Prince Matthew is um, getting into the Edwardian period over there, uh, asking Ross to give him a, a little footstool. Um, I think the Edwardian period's got to his head. But anyway, we have a uh, question from Elise Instagram. Elise is actually wearing a crown at this moment. So <laughs> and that is not an exaggeration. <laughs> anyway. It's a tiara. You're right. Sorry. We had a question on our Instagram yesterday about the Edwardian period. It's from Melinda Blair. And she has asked us about any head ornaments or other um, accessories that were worn during this period. I love this question. Thank you for asking. Like I said at the beginning of, of the podcast, this was the period where, you know, it's not less is more, it's more is more. And it was about layering, layering, layering jewelry. Now, when a woman was to go out in these times, they, it was the first actual time in history where women were wearing jewelry during the daytime as well. So diamonds before this were kind of something that were worn only in evening outings, but jewelry was now, uh, something somewhat of a, um, a piece that should be worn all the time and only special pieces like tiaras and foreigners would be worn during the evening time. Some of the things that were worn, we talked about a stomacher, uh, which is the, it's almost like a breastplate filled with gemstones that is worn on the front of a gown. Um, we have rivieres during this time, which is a 
a full colleted stone, which is um, repeated all the way around the neck, which is fabulous if it's in diamonds in particular. Um, it wouldn't have been worn alone, though. It would have been worn as a layer. So you would have wore, worn it alongside fringe necklaces um, or even negligee necklaces, pearls, um, satours, and also lavaliers. 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 I was like lavaliers. Lavaliers. So all of these, yeah. all of these things would have been worn together in like a real. Um, kind of classical way, but at the same time to display one's wealth. That's probably something that carried on from the Victorian period, actually, the, the way that people would layer these things. But the jewellery was totally, totally different. But I suppose uh, t- well, two, two things I'd like to say. Number one, in identifying Edwardian jewellery, a good trade tip to have if it's set with platinum, as you might have guessed by now. It's a real, real simple one, but it's, it's probably going to be Edwardian. It could be very late Victorian. But it'll be, that'll only probably be then a platinum crown on a ring or a platinum uh, setting in parts of the ri- in, of the piece. But uh, if it's fully platinum jewellery, you can be pretty sure it's going to be post-1900. The other one I'd say is if you'll see a lot of jewellery that's uh, got the date in it, 1902. Like we have one here at the brooch, which, and it is a diamond set in Edwardian script, funny enough. And it uh, says 1902 and it's a brooch. Jewellery with that particular date is going to be made in celebration of the coronation of Edward and it is a number and a motif you'll see around you might wonder oh god have they done that for every year Uh, it's usually just for the years of coronation and you'll see 1902 stuff uh, around a bit I mean they are rare I think we only have one piece in the shop and but it's pretty cool I love that little that little uh, pin. It's a pin um, brooch, yes. but I look at it and I think, oh my gosh, it would make such an amazing hair clip. So I see it all the time. I'm like, hmm, would like to wear that as a hair clip, which of course we always try to, you know, repurpose the jewelry to make it something that we would be wearable today. And I think it would be an amazing hair clip. Um, one thing that I really wanted to mention during the jewelry tips is we haven't touched much on the Russian Revolution and what happened there um, with the Romanovs. Of course, during this period as well, the Edwardian period, uh, it was uh, catastrophic for their family and they were all killed. But before their deaths, we know of the the amazing talents of Fabergé, which was the the royal court jeweler for the Tsars, and um, their eggs, the eggs that they created for um, the Russian imperial family. One of the really incredible techniques that was pioneered by the Fabergé workshop was galosh enameling, and we do see others copying this type of enameling during this period and it does become one of the staples from this period so it is something that I would say as a jewelry tip is something to look out for as well is this kind of galosh enameling usually in round pendants with very fine platinum work over them with like a bow or um almost linear details over it as well in platinum this particular type of enameling 
is extremely beautiful to look at. It has two different techniques where they actually engrave the area first and then they enamel over it. So it's quite a beautiful type of enameling. And of course, who wouldn't want to copy it after you've seen Fabergé do it? So we do see a lot of others copying this trend. And it was a very, it was a very hard type of enamel, mm-hmm. which meant you could wear it for different pieces. But that guilloche or galoche enamel is fantastic. And it's an identifier of typical old Russian jewellery or sometimes old French jewellery as well. But you have to be very, very careful if you're looking at Fabergé stuff because it's probably the most faked jewellery out there. You have to almost be an expert in Fabergé to authenticate it. And even then, you have to be careful. Sometimes you'll see stuff that's made by a Fabergé workmaster because Fabergé, while he was was a jeweller himself, obviously, but he was the first person to manage a series of workshops and so he he often stamped Julius Fabergé made by somebody else, and that that is Fabergé. But those jewelers often made stuff that wasn't for Fabergé, and a lot of people misattribute that stuff to Fabergé when it actually could be it could be just their own workshop stuff, or it could be uh, made for someone else. Bolin, I think pre eighteen ninety, a lot of the uh, jewelry made by a lot of these workmasters was for Bolin and was for the Russian royal family but in the Edwardian period it would have been Fabergé but just something to look out for always just have a keen eye even for Edwardian jewelry generally people do try to reproduce it because it is so fine and so special uh, so just keep your 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 wits about you and if you're ever in a need of assistance that's what we're here for bring the pieces into us and we'd be happy to have a look at them So who's your icon this this um this period? Well, with this period, I know I was just reflecting on the icons that we had in the last uh, two episodes, uh, who were uh, all English and French, as I recall. But in this period, I've gone for an American lady, and I think it probably reflects the shift in the global landscape at this time as well, which is important that we obviously reflect that. And we do our best to bring in stuff from other places in the world as well. But I'm going to go with Alice Roosevelt Longworth, who was the first daughter of America, as they call her. Um, so she was the daughter of Theodore Roosevelt, who became the American president in 1901. And in 1902, so the, the timelines just match up perfectly to Edwardian jewellery as well, actually. So uh, in 1902, she kind of made her social debut, but she became like a instant celebrity instant icon in the u.s and she was only 17 as well and kind of got a few parallels into some of our um some of our icons last week and that she was so young when she went into the public eye but i suppose unlike some previous icons she was she was made for it she loved the attention loved the spotlight the parties so and actually just like empress eugenia before her she also had a color named after her. she had these like famous like blue gray eyes so they called it alice blue uh, or alice blue um, but also she wore a blue dress at that debut that uh, that we we're talking about so uh, like the Natier Blue we mentioned that Tiffany & Co. John F. Young saw uh, when he visited France to see Empress Eugenie in the previous episode. But the, the French uh, newspaper, the Journal des Debats, uh, or Journal des Debats uh, also reported that in one of her first years, she attended 
I'll have to get this right. She attended 407 dinners, 350 balls, and 300 parties. Uh, she literally stole my social life. Did she? <laughs> she did it. And she did it a lot. Like, I was just reading that. I was like, 407 dinners in one year seems pretty impressive. When Especially you think that there's only 365 days in the year. Especially so, after 2020. Yeah. It, yeah. It, I, hello. She's stealing all of my dinners. She's stealing all of our dinners by the sound of it. <laughs> She's, but she, she was extra. Like, she just, I mean, there was so many stories about her that you could have brought up. I mean, really. But... Um, like at her wedding, she cut her wedding cake with a sword that she borrowed off one of the military people beside her, <laughs> as as you do. Uh, she, her father ran for uh, election again after his initial period as president of the US. He ran for president again as part of the Bull Moose Party. Don't know if you ever heard of that. No. Well, basically, he lost the Republican nomination and therefore... So he couldn't run for president, but set up his own party called the Bull Moose Party. But her husband, Elise Roosevelt Longworth's husband, he actually got the nomination. Uh, or sorry, he supported Taft, who was running for the nomination. Uh, so her husband was supporting Taft and her father was running as part of the Bull Moose Party. And she was caught in the middle and she just basically supported her father and caused a huge rift in her marriage. Um, so she was really a woman, uh, which again signified, I think, the kind of women's movement. She just did kind of whatever she wanted and uh, very politically astute, but was famous for her jewellery as well, which is why I think it's very important to mention her. So her engagement ring was a five carat Tiffany cushion cut single stone, um, which is really, I know there was, uh, what was, remember we mentioned before, Archduke Maximilian. Yes. Archbold Duke Maximilian of Austria. Yes. Uh, gave uh, Mary of Burgundy. A, a diamond ring. But yes. This, so that was obviously quite a bit of time before, but this was one of the first diamond solitaires uh, and it's five carats, so quite a nice one. But made by Not Tiffany. too shabby. She, she also had a Tiffany collar that had 10 strands that cost $31,000. Wouldn't say no. But she really uh, captured the imagination of the American people at the time, at a time that America's economy was growing very fast, it was becoming a very uh, strong force on the international stage, and she was the centre of the public attention. And also the, the important thing to remember at that time is prior to the Edwardian period, there wasn't really tabloid newspapers. It was, you know, uh, newspapers were obviously broadsheets or, or whatever, but at this time they did have uh, more mass media, more tabloids who would have reported on you know the scandals uh, of the period the, yeah and what what was uh alice roosevelt doing what was the next piece she was wearing what crazy thing had she done before there was a she she was sent on a, a mission to asia apparently where she jumped into the swimming pool on the boat in her fully clothed and invited one of the generals to swim with her like there was she, her, uh, she was a smoker her, and her father said to her, none of my children will ever smoke under this roof. And apparently she climbed to the top of the White House and ha had a cigarette there. So, you know, fantastic Love character. It. Had some incredible jewellery uh, and epitomised a lot about the period. 
It's funny that you mention Americans because prior to this particular period, we don't see a lot of Americans entering into society as we know it in Europe. But in the Edwardian period, because of the wealth that's coming out of America, we see uh, quite a few heiresses, especially railway heiresses and property mogul heiresses, actually forging connections with those in the European aristocratic circles yes and the as, oil the oil as well was exactly a big one. Yeah. so we start to see this now this all starts to happen around the coronation of king edward the seventh which happens it like bursts onto the scene basically in 1902 when he um when this particular ceremony takes place but my um my icons are actually those who set the scene for this particular coronation, and that is the Cartier brothers. So they're the ones who are dressing people in this particular period. Now, at the time, we're looking at the three brothers. We have Jacques, Louis, and Pierre. Now, they're extremely clever, mostly because of their father and the way in which he gets these brothers to marry um, usually higher up and into a, a richer society than what they were previously um, known in, in, in circles. So we see Jacques actually, um, the youngest, he moves to London and he sets up a shop uh, just before the coronation of um, King Edward VII. Then we see Louis stays in Paris and he is the one who pioneers the use of platinum. He's there experimenting and he is known for actually bringing platinum into the forefront of, of, of jewellery in the way in which he's able to craft it so finely. And then lastly, we see Pierre who goes to New York. And so these three brothers basically take the majority go to the areas where the majority of the wealth is and they set up shop there and they become the fashion icons of this particular period. Now, just to set the scene for you with these brothers, Jacques is in London and at the time of the coronation, King Edward commissions or is known to have commissioned 27 tiaras alone for the coronation from Cartier. So I went on a wild goose chase all weekend trying to find these 27 tiaras. Now I couldn't find all of them. And if we did, it would be a whole podcast just on the tiaras, but I found a few of them, which have fabulous That wouldn't necessarily stories. be a bad thing. I don't think. <laughs> But I found a few of them which have fabulous stories attached to them. So the first one is the Portland Tiara, which was commissioned by the sixth Duke of Portland for his wife, Winifred, who, like I said, was a railway heiress from America. When he married her and then they were going to the coronation, he wanted to have something for her to show their prestige and wealth, of course, a tiara is the number one status symbol for the aristocratic families. And so he commissioned from Cartier the Portland tiara, which also has the Portland diamond uh, in the center of it. Now, if you're listening, I would suggest kind of look up these tiaras as I am 
telling you about them because there's nothing like seeing the real thing and the Portland tiara is absolutely gorgeous. One thing about it though, just uh, before I move on to the next tiara is that it was on display in the Welbeck estate in Sherwood Forest and it was stolen in 2018. So it was stolen from a cabinet in there along with a brooch that was worn, uh, that was used and worn alongside the Portland tiara. It was actually retrieved, but it wasn't until 2020 that the thieves actually um, were prosecuted for stealing this particular tiara. So go and have a look at it. It's again a Cartier original and it was one of the the pieces that were commissioned for this uh, coronation. The others were Princess Victoria. Her diamond tiara was also created for the coronation by Cartier in 1902. And Princess Victoria was actually had a very sad life. She was never allowed to marry and she was actually kept as her mother's companion for her, her life until her mother died. And so her tiara is one that you see her wear in quite a few of the different outings. But again, it's a mystery where this particular tiara went and there's only a few photos of her wearing it and her hair is so bouffant that you can hardly see the tiara. So go in and have a look at that one as well. There's also a diamond loop aigrette. An aigrette is a type of tiara that usually has a plume of feathers placed in it. And this was another one that was created for a member of the royal family in 1902 by Cartier. And the last one that I have is the Essex tiara, which is a scrolling open work diamond tiara by Cartier. And it was created for Adele Beach Grant. And she, again, was another American railway heiress who married the seventh Earl of Essex and this was a tiara that was created for her to wear to the coronation. Lastly I just want to say about the Cartier family this is where they kind of found their footing in the jewellery world was in this period. There's one particular book that I love which is called Tiara's A History of Splendor and it's by Jeffrey Munn who is a Fabergé expert but he did a book on tiaras, the history of tiaras and when I was looking through this book, I was counting how many during the Edwardian period, how many of the tiaras were actually created by Cartier. Now, there's a few that were created by Garrard and Wolfe, but the and of course Fabergé for the Sars, but the majority of the European tiaras are all created by Cartier. And I would say even about 65% all created by Cartier. So this is where they really were grafting. They were really working and making a name for themselves. And of course, it's the reason why we know them today. And just of this period, Jacques Cartier stated, and this wasn't Jacques from the Edwardian period, but one of his um, descendants said, you see back then jewelry was a part of a woman's makeup. It's not like that today when jewels are reserved for special occasions. It was a time when women would not go out without a necklace, bracelets, brooches, corsage, ornaments, or even hat pins. And in the evening, there would be more gems. There'd be tiaras, diamond necklaces, or ropes of pearls. They didn't always buy new pieces, but they did often have their old pieces remounted or restrung. 
And so it's a period of absolute splendor that, of course, was fueled by the designs of these three brothers. Well, wow, thanks for that, Elise. Fascinating discussion and information about the tiaras and how Cartier were fundamental to making them. And I think, uh, in a way, it kind of gives the rest, it's maybe the reason why the rest of their jewelry, which was also fabulous, obviously, has such a prestige to it, is that they had this like showcase part, which is their tiaras. Um, and the, I love the story about the Portland one and how it <laughs> disappeared in 2018 and got refound then. Um, you'd wonder how, you know, these tiaras go missing but uh, over the courses of years and years and years and years uh, they only have to get misplaced once or get left vulnerable once and and obviously they can get into the wrong hands uh, or chances are someone they, they're just in a safe somewhere and someone mightn't even know they're there like so that's that's the problem with these jewels is that um for for us this is why we do what we do is we like to uncover where these jewels are and bring life back into them these these pieces are rich in history and they're made to be worn and they when you place them on your body you can feel like they've actually been made for the contours of your body and this is what in, incredible antique jewelry is about it's all about the story connected to a piece of art that is con completely wearable for every day and i think that's why georgian jewelry is it's quite rare but it's um like we probably sell a lot more edwardian victorian art deco and retro jewelry because it's it's made to be worn and i think today uh i'd say most of the piece i sell it's everyday wear like want to wear this and it makes total sense if you're buying a really nice piece of jewelry you want to wear it every day and so that's what i see the wearable pieces and that's, I think, why I think one reason why Edwardian is so popular. Where's my... Oh, you've given them to me. <laughs> yeah. You have your questions. They're in your hand. <laughs> so this is our gem trivial pursuit. Edwardian edition. Oh, he switched them around on us. Oh, I know why he did, though. I know why he did. That's why not... No, I know I did because one of the answers came up during the podcast. Ross, our producer, just saying that the questions had to get switched because one of the answers came up during the podcast. So we'll see. But a score at the moment, I believe, I think it's a draw, is it? Five all, yeah, five, po five points each. So round three. I'll begin. I'll ask the questions first for a change. So, first one The construction of the RMS Titanic began during the Edwardian era. But can you name the Irish port? That was its last stop before setting off on its ill-fated voyage across the Titanic. Um, I know that it was in Cork. Okay. Any further information you'd like to add to that? Cork. I, okay, we'll give you we'll give you that. I think it, it's Cove County, Cork, and I think yeah, you knew it was Cork, which was obviously uh, where it did stop, but it was Cove Cove Port in County Cork. Um, was its last stop um, obviously set on its faithful journey in April 1912 before striking an iceberg at about 2 o'clock in the morning uh, okay this isn't a history lesson sorry, yeah. I have a quite, a, quite an interest in the Titanic but funny in terms of jewellery as well uh, there's some a Titanic collection of jewellery that was recovered from the Titanic as well it's which true. is quite interesting so okay question 2 can you name the literary character delighted this is my question created by J.M. Barry during this period who was 
in, who has endured as a cultural icon symbolizing youth, innocence, and escapism. Winnie the Pooh. Not far off, funny enough, but it's Peter Pan. <laughs> Question three. So one out of two. Identify the famous Edward from this line. I met her on Grafton Street, right outside the bar. She shared a cigarette with me while her brother played the guitar. I del- I'll give you a hint. I deliberately said that slowly because if I said it quicker, you might get it. No idea. I met her on Grafton Street. No. <laughs> that music singing on my strong point um ed sheeran oh okay Edward sheeran, yeah. no 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 give me that <laughs> okay one for me that's it and that was like a they get more and more difficult ross okay question one the wright brothers famously took flight for the first time during the edwardian period but can you give me either one of their first names mm, i read about this last night <laughs> <What>? <laughs> uh the right brothers oh does it begin with a uh, <laughs> <No>. b <laughs> uh. <laughs> okay oh i don't know uh, james uh. go on orville or Wilbur. Wilbur. Oh, never got that. Now you're uh, going to have to name your first funny, child one of those names, Matthew. Yeah, but funny. I uh, vote for Wilbur. It's a very good question, actually, because I think a lot of people would know the Wright brothers, obviously, but they're, they're always referred to as the Wright brothers, aren't they? So, yeah. Question two. Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw was a prominent figure in performing arts during this time. But can you name his 1912 play that would eventually be adapted into the 1956 musical, My Fair Lady? Matthew is looking so puzzled, so bewildered. Uh, I've never heard of George Bernard Shaw, actually. (laughs) 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 Oh, George Bernard Shaw. Uh, Oh, at least I don't know. Uh, Just choose a play. I'm sure I know. I'm sure I know it's... uh, as I'm in, sure. I'm sure you do know it. Yeah. So. Well, um, Ross, you said nothing during mine. Okay. No okay. lifeline. <laughs> you got. You got. You had cork for co. So we're we're being a we're being a bit. Uh, it, it's just one word then, is it? Um. Let me see. Uh, Irish playwright. Okay. George B. Shaw <laughs> was a prominent figure. In the performing arts during this time. But can Matthew name his 1912 play that would eventually be adapted into the 1956 musical, My Fair Lady? Edward? Uh, The correct answer is Pygmalion. I knew that was actually a play, but then I didn't think you'd do it. Oh no, that's so. Uh, okay, last one. Last one. You, you funny, were you, you Ross, were doing it all Ross for me. Ross gestured outside the shop here, and I thought you doing article? it all for me. Articles, our neighbour here. Uh, really, really cool, nice shop. Uh, oh god. Anyway, question three. Identify the famous Edward from this tweet. 
When we were little, we went to went to the library and asked for a book on how to read. Mm, tweet. Okay. Um, let's think about. No, 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 no hints, no hints. The tweet is done by. So it's still alive, obviously. Uh, uh, yes, tweeted. and and they're two performers that are related to each other that are from Ireland. That's just giving me you say then I didn't give you a big fat clue. Was it Jedward? Yes. I mean, I would have never got that to be fair, but no, but uh, I think fair is fair. So look, that was um our gem tree pursuit one all a draw um Although I think possibly we both could have had zero. So I think yeah, the end result is so. probably fair. So now Pygmalion, I should have got that, to be honest, because I actually did look that for anyway. But he says this I every think... single week. I should have got this. I should have got that. Yeah. Yawn, yawn, yawn. <laughs> uh, God, you wouldn't want to have thin skin working around here, would you? Jesus. No tin skin here. <laughs> Okay, um, so, so look, I really hope you enjoyed our episode there. We're going to wrap it up there. I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I loved hearing about the tiaras. That was very interesting stories and history. Alice Roosevelt didn't even know anything about her. So that was fabulous. So look, just want to say if you're joining us for the first time, we've covered the Georgian and the Victorian periods in the first two episodes. And we'll be going decade by decade right up until the 1990s with this series. So do go back, listen to the first couple of episodes just so you get your frame of what's going on. Uh, and well, as well, don't forget to sub- subscribe to our podcast and um, just to make sure you, you never miss an episode. We're doing loads on Instagram lately as well. It's at Matthew.Weldons, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dot W-E-L-D-O-N-S. Uh, and our website, courtfield.ie. Get your jewellery fixed there. Lots of good information. I'd like to thank my co-host, Elise Ketcher, uh, for joining us today. Thank you very much, Elise. Thanks, Matthew and Ross. Uh, And, of course, uh, our producer extraordinaire, uh, Ross Hannon, for producing this episode. We will be back with you very, very soon. Uh, Have a great week and look forward.